Welcome to the podcast. This week, we want to go back to the year 1891, 20 years before Abdu'l-Baha's journey to the West. During this period, Paris became a crossroads between the East and the West, and many prominent heroes of the faith heard about the Baha'i movement here. As we know, it is always important to study history and to gain insights and inspiration from the lives of others. The following account is from the perspective of May Maxwell, where she tells the story of the conversion of Thomas Breakwell, a brilliant star in the Paris community. O oh Paris, crossroads of the world, when has your history unfolded such mysterious tales? Such is the record, the divine significance, of the conversion of Thomas Breakwell, a young Englishman living in the southern states of America, holding an important position in a cotton mill, spending his long summer vacations in Europe. During his vacation of 1891, he crossed on the steamer with Mrs. Milner, and as she found him interested in theosophy, she mentioned a group of friends in Paris, whom she said were interested in kindred subjects. And she was impelled to bring this youth to see me on their arrival. I was at that time in a small apartment connected with the beautiful home of Mrs. Jackson, which she had placed at my disposal when my family had left for the summer. My dear mother, although broad and fine in all matters, had resented my constant work in the service of the Baha'i cause, especially since my pilgrimage to the prison of Akka. And when Abdu'l-Baha had refused, at her urgent appeal, to permit me to accompany her during her summer to Brittany, saying that I must on no account absent myself from Paris, my unhappy and indignant mother had closed our home and left me alone. I shall never forget opening the door and seeing him standing there. It was like looking at a veiled light. I saw at once his pure heart, his burning spirit, his thirsty soul, and all over was cast the veil which is over every soul until it is rent asunder by the power of God in this day. My attention was riveted on this youth, of medium height, slender, erect and graceful, with intense eyes and an indescribable charm. We spoke together for about half an hour of theosophy, his work, his projected trip through Europe, and I discerned a very rare person of high standing in culture, simple, natural, intensely real in his attitude toward life and his fellow men. Although no word of the divine revelation was spoken, and he assumed I was interested in theosophy, yet he studied me with a searching gaze, and as they left, he asked if he might see me the following day. He arrived the next morning in a strangely exalted mood, no veil of materiality covering his radiant soul. His eyes burned with a hidden fire, and looking at me earnestly, he asked if I noticed anything strange about him. 
Seeing his condition, I bade him be seated and reassured him, saying he looked very happy. When I was here yesterday, I felt a power, an influence that I had felt once before in my life, when, for a period of three months, I was continually in communion with God. I felt, during that time, like one moving in a rarefied atmosphere of light and beauty. My heart was afire with love for the Supreme Beloved. I felt at peace, at one with all my fellow men. Yesterday, when I left you, I went alone down the Champs-Élysées. The air was warm and heavy, not a leaf was stirring. When suddenly, a wind struck me and whirled around me. And in that wind, a voice said, with an indescribable sweetness and penetration, Christ has come again. Christ has come again. Do you think I have gone crazy, May? No, I said, smiling. You are just becoming sane. What hours we spent together. How readily he grasped the full import of the message. How his thirsty soul drank in every word. I gave him all the little we had to read and told him of my visit to the prison of Akka, the day spent in the presence of the master, until his heart was filled with such longing that all his former life was swept away. He gave up his journey, canceled his plans, and had but one hope in life, to be permitted to go himself and behold the face of Abdu'l-Bahá. At that time, a young Baha'i, Herbert Hopper, had received permission to go to Akka. Thus they planned to travel together, and Thomas Breakwell wrote the following supplication to the Master. My Lord, I believe. Forgive me. Thy servant, Thomas Breakwell. I wrote the Master enclosing the words of Breakwell, begging him to send his reply to Port Said, to which port these two young pilgrims eagerly embarked. That evening, I went to the concierge of our apartment to get my mail, and there lay a little blue cablegram from Abdu'l-Bahá. With what wonder and awe I read his words, you may leave Paris at any time. Thus, by implicit and unquestioning obedience in the face of all opposition, the master's will had been fulfilled, and I had been the link in the chain of his mighty purpose. How gratefully my heart dwells on the divine significance of the Master, on the joy and wonder of my mother as I told her everything. And when she read the Master's cablegram, she burst into tears and exclaimed, You have indeed a wonderful Master. When, in the autumn, we gathered once more in Paris, the influence of Breakwell made itself felt in ever-widening circles of friends. I have always felt that Thomas Breakwell was the first of the Paris believers to receive confirmation of the Holy Spirit and the fire of the love of God. You're listening to The Journey West Podcast dedicated to following the travels of Abdu'l-Bahá in the West. 
So the following quotation is from a book titled Century of Light, which was compiled by the Universal House of Justice. The souls answered his summons in spite, not because, of the liberal and economically advanced world they knew, a world they no doubt cherished and valued, and in which they had necessarily to carry on their daily lives. Their response arose from a level of consciousness that recognized, even if sometimes only dimly, the desperate need of the human race for spiritual enlightenment. To remain steadfast in their commitment to this insight required of these early believers, on whose sacrifice of self much of the foundation of the present-day Baha'i communities, both in the West and in many other lands, were laid, that they resist not only family and social pressures, but also the easy rationalizations of the worldview in which they had been raised, and to which everything around them insistently exposed them. There was a heroism about the steadfastness of these early Western Baha'is that is, in its own way, as affecting as that of their Persian co-religionists, who in these same years were facing persecution and death for the faith they had embraced. Yeah, I think that it's their example. They, in their time period, they were really, it was a really small community. I, I think Baha'is often feel maybe alone or they really are against the grain of society, like you say. But even more so, these individuals were, you know, very isolated believers. I think that's an excellent point, especially the idea of living in a world that easily rationalizes a lot of behaviors and is permissive of a lot of mindsets and thoughts that we're working to change and to enlighten and to bring to a higher level of consciousness. And I think, you know, we've all had our own struggles with when you're making choices, what, what to do that everyone else is doing and that you can easily justify and what you know is a is a choice that's made that's not only affecting you, but thinking of the entire world. Yeah, I really hope that these stories help people um, understand that they're not alone and that they can find inspiration from these individuals' lives. Our reader this week is Mdu Dalami. Talk on October 21st, 1911. The pitiful causes of war and the duty of everyone to strive for peace. Abdu'l-Bahá said, I hope you are all happy and well. I am not happy but very sad. The news of the Battle of Benghazi grieves my heart. I wonder at the human savagery that still exists in the world. How is it possible for men to fight from morning until evening, killing each other, shedding the blood of their fellow men, and for what objects? To gain possession of a part of it. Even animals, when they fight, have an immediate and more reasonable cause for their attacks. How terrible it is that men, who are of the higher kingdom, can descend to slaying and bringing misery to their fellow beings for the position of a tract of land. The highest of created beings fighting to obtain the lowest form of matter, earth. Land belongs not to one people, but to all people. This earth is not man's home, but his tomb. It is for their tombs these men are fighting for. 
There is nothing so horrible in this world as the tomb, the abode of the decaying bodies of men. However great the conquer, however many countries he may reduce to slavery, he is unable to retain any part of these devastated lands but one tiny portion, his tomb. If more land is required for the improvement of the condition of people, for the spread of civilization, for the substitution of just laws for brutal customs, surely it will be possible to acquire peaceable, the necessary extension of territory. But war is made for the satisfaction of man's ambition, for the sake of worldly gain to the few. Terrible misery is brought to numberless homes, breaking the hearts of hundreds of men and women. How many widows mourn their husbands? How many stories of savage cruelty do we hear? How many little orphan children are crying for their dead fathers? How many women are weeping for their slain sons? There is nothing so heartbreaking and terrible as an outburst of human savagery. I charge you all that each one of you concentrates all the thoughts of your heart and love and unity. When a thought of war comes, opposes by a stronger thought of peace, a thought of hatred must be destroyed by a more powerful thought of love. Thought of war brings destruction to all harmony, well-being, restfulness and content. Thoughts of love are constructive of brotherhood, peace, friendship and happiness. When soldiers of the world draw their swords to kill, soldiers of God clasp each other's hands. So may all the savagery of men disappear by the mercy of God, working through the pure in hearts and the sincere of soul. Do not think the peace of the world an ideal impossible to attain. Nothing is impossible to the divine benevolence of God. If you desire with all your hearts friendship with every race on earth, your thoughts, spiritual and positive, will spread, it will become the desire of others, growing stronger and stronger until it reaches the minds of all men. Do not despair, work steadily. Sincerity and love will conquer hate. How many seemingly impossible events are coming to pass in these days? Set your faces steadily towards the light of the world. Show love to all. Love is a bread of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men. Take courage. God never forsakes his children who strive and work and pray. Let your hearts be filled with a strenuous desire that tranquility and harmony may encircle all this warring world. So will success crown your efforts, and with the universal brotherhood will come the kingdom of God in peace and goodwill. In this room today are members of many races, French, American, English, German, Italian, brothers and sisters, meeting in friendship and harmony. Let this gathering be a foreshadowing of what's will, in very truth, take place in this world, when every child of God realizes that there are leaves of one tree, flowers in one garden, drops in one ocean, and sons and daughters of one father, whose name is love. This week's roundtable includes Anna, Laili, and Ali. Hi, my name is Anna, and I work in film. Hi, I'm Laili, and I'm a project manager. Hello, my name is Ali. I'm a musician. I think this one is harder because... Um, War for me has always been such a like, I mean, it's it's talking about like war and peace. And like for me, like, I don't know, it's just 
less of an accessible thing to me because it's something that I don't like directly experience like in my life. So it's harder to like talk about it as practically as I've been able to talk about some of the other things. Well, in in some ways, I think sometimes it, it it's easy for us to believe that we've overcome certain, you know, some of these things, uh, some of these stages of, of mankind, but then as soon as, because it doesn't affect us directly, as you were saying, but uh, then you turn on the news and you see, you know, it's just because of that, just because it doesn't affect you directly that, that we feel like it's, um, that it's something, you know, that we, we can identify with. Um, but it's still very much going on. And um, we were talking about earlier, in in some way this was, uh, this talk was given what, about a hundred years ago, and since then, and the warfare has changed, but uh, there's still it's still very present in in mankind. No, it's still like you can you can see it all over. And maybe it's just changed like the way it's it's expressed and everything, but oppression and and war still still happens. Sometimes I feel that because we see war on the news, like you said, like you turn on the TV, you will see very graphic images perhaps of things that are happening. Um, but these things are far away and yet they're in this little box in your living room. And even though we see it, it's almost like we don't feel it, you know, we, we are detached from it in a way. Like it's very much going on around the world, mm -hmm. but we don't feel as connected to it as if we were in that country, you know, obviously experiencing the war, even though these are our brothers and sisters who are being treated in this way and who are suffering in such a way, we, we just somehow are able to sit back and relax and watch it happen. Yeah, and I think, I think it affects people's attitudes too because, I mean, there's, there's so many people in the world who are experiencing this directly, and I think that it, um, even if you're not... Um, even if your life isn't directly touched by um, war in whatever country, you still have this idea that it's something that happens or that it's, it's something that's natural. Um, I was just reading something else by Abdu'l-Bahá where he talks about um, the West being morally uncivilized. Like, we've had this concept of, like, um, a lot of... Um, other cultures being uncivilized, or that's like a Western concept that like um, Native Americans are un were uncivilized. Um, but the idea that we can be morally uncivilized and that means a whole other thing, I think that that has a lot to do with war and then also the fact that people take that for granted, that like it is something that just happens or is natural. But it's so beautiful that Abdu'l-Bahá addresses that and says... You know that we shouldn't find that, or we shouldn't think that peace is is an ideal that's impossible to attain. You know, I think that that is a very common thought among people is that we we see certain you know we see people as idealistic because they believe in a better world and and uh, everything that surrounds us is so uh, you know like about the devastation of the world and it really seems like we're going down this path that just has no end and and there is no bright future um and and also the fact that he talks about our thoughts you know and and that was one of the things that really that really touched me was was that we don't realize how powerful our thoughts can be 
and uh, and what we surround ourselves with. I think we we think of our thoughts and our actions as two different things, and as long as we act in a good way, it, it doesn't really matter what we think, you know. But in the end, you know, these things affect our attitude. These thoughts are affect our attitude, and also spread as as Abdul Baha was saying, spread to other people as well, you know. And and that's what's eventually going to change the world is if we train our our thoughts to you know to be able to oppose these thoughts of war with stronger thoughts of peace, mm-hmm. um, and that it isn't an impossible ideal. It's it's actually very much possible. And it's really beautiful that each one of us can can do that in our lives. It's not <clears throat> it's not something that. Um, requires any special skill, any special status in society, you know, that you can do something uh, to help the world just by the way that you think, the way that you act, the way that you speak, and that each one of our actions has has significance and can make a difference. Community building, um, really in any nation, whether it's like a war-torn nation or a country that's doing um, really well economically, um, because... Like, I think of, like, our world leaders right now that are sort of, I mean, there's so many countries that are really unstable and so many, like, so many conflicts, basically. And I think, like, these are the leaders of the world. These are the people who are supposed to be, like, who are supposed to be looking out for the welfare of their people. And a lot of them are not doing that, and they're motivated by things that are um, by selfish, um, selfishness, by greed, um but and there's not a lot that the people of the world who they're supposed to protect there's not a lot that those people can do um except protest which doesn't necessarily get um doesn't necessarily achieve unity but so there's not a lot that people can do to stop their leaders from perpetuating oppression and war, but there is a lot that we can do to just build something that is, that is opposed to that by being the opposite, that, that, that is peace and not war. Like we can create um, smaller communities that exemplify unity. Um, and so whatever else is happening in the world, like that um, hopefully will cease eventually and what we have created will will last. So in a way, we shouldn't be expecting like the powers of the world or the the leaders of the world, although they definitely have an influence on the direction of things, but we shouldn't be sitting passively uh, in a way, as you were saying, in our living room watching the you know the TV mm-hmm. or or listening to these occurrences, but we should really, Think of how how our actions and how the you know the small environment that surrounds us can start becoming a change mm-hmm. I like that. Just like everything from the change is really going to come from from the grassroots. Eventually, it's not going to be from from up down. If you can say that, I think that really puts into perspective. Um, first of all, the the purpose of humanity. I mean, we. We believe that this material world is not the end of existence. We believe that there is um, a reality beyond this one. Um, and while this one is very important, it's it's not the only one. And I guess we, 
in looking beyond that, um, when you when you think about that, and then you think about this planet and Earth, and like this this obsession that people have had with land for so long, um, and property and ownership, um, that really does all dissolve when you think about the fact that it's not even the ultimate reality. And then um, I guess it's really really complex to then apply that to the idea of war and peace and like what kind of society we're actually trying to build. But I think it's a good place to start. I find it very interesting that how, how we educate our, our children and we teach them that, you know, when, when they possess something and somebody else wants it, that you have to share it. And, uh, you know, just because, you know, this other child has a toy or has something, it doesn't mean that you have to have it. You know, we, we teach all these core values to, uh, to our children, but then we grow up and our life becomes about possessing, you know, like it, it's what surrounds us. It's, it's what it, our goal in life becomes possessing, whether it's, you know, possessing, you know, financial stability, which obviously there's, there's a lot of necessary things for our subsistence, but, um, do we, do we know when to stop? You know, do, do we know when to just say, okay, it's enough. I can live with this. And this is enough, or, or or is it really driven by what we see around us and what we, you know, we we hear about the latest gadgets and we hear about you know the latest technologies and and we really have to have these things and the more they become available and we, the more we hear about them the more we we need to have and and I think so many of of these wars and you know for for land and for as as Abdul Baha talks about for different parts of the of the earth, you know, it, 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 it's about that. It's, it's really, it's always been uh, a battle of egos, you know. It's like, oh, if this person has this much, then I have to have more. Like, how can this person be, you know, uh, have more than I have? And he's going to be considered greater, greater than I am and so on. And so it's really, I think, we're, we're called to, on every level of life, whether we are, uh, you know, a... a leader of a country or just you know the smallest person um we're all called to to really think about what exactly do do we need you know like are we are we maybe uh going beyond what we what is necessary for for our life and and distribute more equitably you know and um because in the end as as abdul baha explains how much of it are we taking with us, you know? And just the, the small portion that will be our, our tomb. I love that uh, mm-hmm. that imagery, you know? Like, that's that's the only thing that is actually going to end up being ours, you know? Uh, <laughs> or at least of our bodies, because we know our, our souls are not going to be there. Um, but how much time we spend trying to acquire things that in the end are just going to vanish. This it, The first time I read this um, talk, actually, that passage really struck me, this this idea of um, that the earth is not man's home but his tomb. And, yeah, it just got me thinking a lot about what Ali just said about what we have and why we have it and why we want it and what we do with it and and at the expense of who. I mean, people acquire things, but then other people, you know, suffer from it sometimes. Or what what do we want? the things we have for? Is it for service to humanity? Is it to improve our communities and the world? Or is it just for our own, you know, for our... Gratification. Yeah. It's very interesting. And then what? I mean, we don't know. First of all, we don't know how long we're going to be here for. But then 
even if we were here forever, for, well, not forever, for 100 years, then what, you know? What was all that effort for, anyway? It's really interesting, gives perspective. I think Abdu'l-Bahá's message is always a message of hope. And in a way, he he definitely wants us to, I mean, he, he explains, he's sad about these occurrences, and I think so should we. At, at every time, you know, be be sad about the things that we see, but but we shouldn't let that be a, um, you know, like we shouldn't let that uh, lead us to despair in a way. I think that the message that Abdul Baha gives us here of hope, like Ali was saying, is is uh, really beautiful because it's really easy to just despair, um, but we know that we have a part to play in this whole. Um, play. <laughs> I don't know in this whole, <laughs> what's the word scene. <laughs> um, and um, and yeah, and our part is important. It's just as important in you know assisting in building a better world. And we we have to be hopeful, and we have to like he says, we have to take courage, and know that God never forget, forsakes us, and that we can make a difference. So I recently just heard a story about. Um, a man somewhere who was imprisoned because of his religious beliefs. And in this town where this man lived, um, the whole neighborhood was sort of against him and his wife. Um, and when this man was imprisoned, uh, these people, they came and they came to the woman's house, the wife's house, um, and they told her that she had to leave. And she refused to leave. She wouldn't do it. And then she ended up making the decision that instead of... Um, letting herself become more and more isolated from these people who apparently hate, if not have very, very strong feelings against her. Um, she decided to do something kind for every member of this town every single day. Like, there was a man who, like, opened, um, who had, like, a fruit stand or something, and she would go, and, like, every morning she would be his first customer, and she would pay visits to people and things like that, and so she just um, gradually sort of, like, won the hearts of these people by just being kind to them, and so I guess that's what I think of when I think of, like, oppose a thought of war okay. with a thought of peace, um, and when I heard this story, I thought, well, what, like, this woman is doing this willingly for people who have expressed hatred for her what like what can I do to just the people around me who generally like me like um and who I also like um so I guess um when I think about like my presence in any community where I exist whether it's like on a film set or just in like whatever hipster neighborhood I live in like there are things that I can do for people that um that they don't ask for and that are not for my own gain but just I think I think it just feels good to do that. And I think if you have enough people doing that and it becomes something beyond just an act of kindness, it can become something constructive. And I think that's, um, I guess that's a good place to start if you don't know what else to do. Um, so yeah, that's, that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. I love one of the things that Abdu'l-Bahá mentions at the end, that we should have our hearts be filled with a strenuous desire that tranquility and harmony may encircle this world. And it's not enough in a way to have, you know, only the desire, but you have to have a strenuous desire. So 
you know, like, I know I'm going to be thinking about what does that look like in, in my life? Is this really a strenuous desire? I, I get just the, in, in the imagery of, of, you know, it's like such a huge effort that we have to be making in this, mm-hmm. in this respect. And also he, he finishes with this idea that he mentions so much in, in his writings that really we're all the leaves of one tree and the flowers of one garden. And, and I'm reminded of, of what you were saying, Leila, how, like, as we accumulate things, like we have to understand that every every excess that we that we take for ourselves is at the expense of mm-hmm. someone else. And I think we're realizing, as we become more of a global society, we realize more and more that there's nothing we can do in our lives, no matter how small it is, that doesn't affect uh, someone else in the world. You know, and mm-hmm. and now we're realizing this with you know environmental issues, with human rights issues. Um, that really when one portion of of the world or of mankind suffers like it affects everybody we're all connected in a way that i don't think we fully understand yet you know but we're constantly reminded of this and i think we should really bring, like keep that in the forefront of our minds and that interconnectedness yeah even like the things that you buy even on a small level like what companies are producing those things and what do those companies do like globally and like where how did you earn your money and what like how are you using it like yeah it's really really complex and it can it affects every aspect of our lives we'd like to say a special thanks to our roundtable discussion panelists this week Anna Castellas, Leila Yajia and Ali Yousefi also thanks to Sanjel Erickson and Barry Thorne, who played the parts of May Maxwell and Thomas Breakwell. Be sure to email us any stories about your community and the actions you're taking to info at thejourneywest.org. Thanks for joining us. Bye.